0: According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the word of God. Join me, if you would, once again in Jeremiah, the classic Christmas chapter of Jeremiah 37. I'm joking, of course. There's not much Christmas in Jeremiah 37, but we're going to make it work. We are not a sacramental assembly, nor sacerdotal or any other such term. We don't follow an Advent calendar. We are not a liturgical local church, you may have noticed, uh, in recent uh, weeks or months. We, uh, we teach line upon line, precept upon precept. And uh, so as it is, our study continues today in Jeremiah. We have been uh, working our way through Isaiah and Jeremiah week by week, chapter by chapter. And if we, the Lord allows us to stay on track, then we will conclude this book right before Easter and right before my trip to Ukraine. And so I'm really eager to to keep on that schedule and, and, and wrap up this series before a two-week or three-week break in, uh, in April and May. Um, so all of that being said, we need to hit it hard here in this chapter. Uh, 21 verses we've got to cover from verse 1 to the bottom and, uh, and do so. Before we do so, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to set aside distractions, asking that He might hedge us about and protect us. There were reports that churches may come under attack on this day. So uh, God has been faithful, and we want to stay in prayer and uh, thank Him for the blessings of his word shall we pray most gracious heavenly father we do come before you this morning thankful for your truth rejoicing in your faithfulness and father for the i think fourth time maybe fifth It hadn't happened very often that Christmas does fall on a Sunday, but here we are, Father, and we're thankful for this day, rejoicing in the blessing that it is to study, to show ourselves approved. We're thankful, Father, for the birth of your son, that uh, born of a virgin, he did come sinless and lived a sinless life. He qualified to go to the cross, and he did go to the cross, ready, willing, and able. And Father, we just are so thankful that by your grace and in the the glory of your plan, we can assemble on this day to receive instruction, to be built up in the faith, and to be strengthened in the inner man. And we call upon your faithfulness to lead us in the truth of your word. Thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had made king in the land of Judah, reigned as king in place of Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim. And so we have a setting for this that can place this chapter with a fair degree of precision. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord, which he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. And so we have wide-scale apostasy, wide-scale rejection of truth and a despising of the word of God. And so a nation that reaches this point is in a lot of trouble. Uh, there can be a point where the king is in rebellion, but the people are positive to doctrine. And then there can be a benefit by association there where a pivot of believers can can bless even an unregenerate king, a, a rebellious king. Uh, it can go the other way as well. You can have a, a godly king that's serving the Lord and loving the Lord, but the population is still pretty much idolaters and in rejection of the word of God. Uh, Here we have both, the population and the the political leadership in hostility against the word of God. And uh, so for the context of this chapter, I think it's important for us to remind ourselves who these kings are. Uh, We've been tracking them since the very beginning, uh, but we can lose sight. Zedekiah was made king. He was an appointed king. Uh, not necessarily entitled to be the king, but uh, he was available. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar felt that he would be useful, that he would be pliable for whatever reason. We don't know what Nebuchadnezzar's thinking was that went to the uncle and said, uh, this guy will work, but this is what happened when Jehoiachin was taken into captivity. We've seen him in previous chapters under the name Jehoiachin. Here in this chapter, he's, uh, the shorter form of this is Kaniah. Sometimes he's called Jeconiah. Sometimes he's called Kaniah, Sometimes he's called Jehoiachin. But it's the same guy, no matter uh, what name we, uh, we refer to him as and uh, this was when uh, in 597 then in the second of the of the captivities when ezekiel was carried away when the priests were many of the priests were carried away when uh, many of the blacksmiths and the and the uh, professionals were carried away and only the uh, the unskilled were left in the land we have a a context for this here that that pairs us up real well with verses one through ten also the narrative of this is pretty clear in second kings 24 verses 17 through 20, 2 Kings 24, verses 17 through 20, and um, if I get to the right page here that would help um, We have Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin and uh, the two kings before uh, Zedekiah, and then more rebellion, and then Nebuchadnezzar comes in and stamps it out, and so we read here in, uh, let's see, I want to back up even before verse 17. Um, verse 10 says, at that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, went up to Jerusalem and the city came under siege. So as it happened in 605, as it's happening again now in 597, it seems that every few years the Jews get uppity and the Babylonians have to come back and say, quit that and uh, Jehoiachin the king of Judah went out to the king of Babylon he and his mother she gets mentioned repeatedly in this narrative and uh, his servants and his captains and his officials so the king of Babylon took him captive in the eighth year of his reign he got to reign longer than uh, um, than others and uh, shorter than many He carried out from there all the treasures of the house of the Lord, the treasures of the king's house. He cut in pieces all the vessels of gold, which uh, Solomon, uh, uh, king of Israel, had made in the temple of the Lord, just as the Lord had said. Then he led away into exile all Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. So he led Jehoiachin away into exile into Babylon, also the king's mother and the king's wives, plural, notice, and his officials, and the leading men of the land. And he led away to exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And this seems horrible. This is actually grace in action. This is the remnant that God's preserving. This is the remnant that are going to be spared in 586 when, the, when he comes back again and, and levels the place and kills everybody practically. All right. And the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the smiths, 1,000, all strong and fit for war. And these the king of Babylon brought into exile to Babylon. Now we get introduced to Uncle Matt. The uh, king of Babylon made his uncle Mattaniah king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. So here is the introduction to King Zedekiah. That wasn't even his real name. This is the name that Nebuchadnezzar gave him. And uh, he was really just an uncle. I think it's good. My kids have an Uncle Matt. It's good to have an Uncle Matt. And uh, this, this Uncle Matt actually is the one that's made king in, uh, for the final years of uh, Jerusalem's existence here. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamutal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, different Jeremiah. So he's got a grandpa named Jeremiah, and he's got a prophet named Jeremiah. And uh, it's interesting that he's totally negative to anything Jeremiah has to say which we'll see here this morning. Um, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had, uh, yeah, Jehoiakim had done. And so if you color code your kings in the Old Testament, color code this one for bad. Okay? Uh, this is the southern kings of Judah, some are good, some are bad. Uh, remember, every, everybody after Josiah, it's all downhill from Josiah. So Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, Zedekiah, they're all bad at this point. For through the anger of the Lord, this came about in Jerusalem and Judah until he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. And that is actually a marvelous, fitting introduction to not only our chapter today, but really to uh, the situation here in Jeremiah's ministry. So returning back now to Jeremiah 37, we have a context for this. Uh, Zedekiah is the son of Judah's last good king that would be Josiah. He's the brother of two other kings, Jehoahaz and Jehoiakim. And he's the uncle of yet another king, Jehoiachin, the one we just read about who was carried away with the queen mother. And so, boy, if there's somebody that's seen a lot of kings, (laughs) uh, he's seen a lot of kings. The son of one, the uh, brother with, of course, Jehoahaz and Jehoiakim. And then the uncle, because Jehoiachin is the son of Jehoiakim. Uh, as far as this goes and so the diagram is useful I've shown it before I, I refer to it a lot uh, it, I have this bookmarked in my software so I can pull it up every time I need to look at it Josiah reigned for 31 years and he was the last good king and then Jehoahaz only reigned for three months he was uh, uh, kind of a puppet and the Egyptians said we don't like you and took him away taken prisoner to Egypt by Pharaoh Nico. and then Jehoiakim becomes king he reigned for 11 years Uh, then his son below that Jehoiachin reigned for three months just a brief little reign in fact so short it practically doesn't even count and we'll have to discuss that as far as uh, a prophecy is concerned uh, whether it counts or not uh, was uh, actually something that came up last week in uh, uh, a rebuke against King Jehoiakim that he would have no son on the throne and yet uh, Jehoiachin got the throne for at least three months. And then he's taken prisoner at Babylon and then backing up there to his uncle, King Zedekiah. He gets to reign for 11 years, from 597 to 586. He too will be taken prisoner and uh, blinded. The last thing he'll see is the execution of his sons, and then his eyes will be put out and then he'll be carried away to Babylon where he will die. So here's our, uh, here's our setting for this. His house was in complete rejection of Jeremiah's ministry, yet... He's, he will send agents for intercession and inquiry. And I find this uh, curious. A, a guy that, that hates what Yahweh has to say, but he still has a curiosity to send a couple of agents to go inquire of the Lord or to go uh, ask of the prophet what uh, might be coming up in the future. And so as we continue to read then in this chapter this morning, Jeremiah 37, 3, um, so we see the rejection in verse 2, yet... Verse 3, King Zedekiah sent Jehuchal, the son of Shelemiah, and Zephaniah, the son of Messiah, the priest, to Jeremiah the prophet, saying, please pray to the Lord our God on our behalf. All right? So I, I don't really care anything you have to say, but could you pray for me? <laughs> right? You ever encounter people like that? They don't come to church. They don't love the Lord. They're not even saved, but they got some horrible thing that's happening in their life. So they say, hey, would you mind praying for me? Okay. And, and so that happens. I think it happens more commonly than, than we might think otherwise. And, and so I I tell them, I kind of smile inwardly and outwardly. And I say, yeah, I'll pray for you. What I'm praying is you get saved. I'm praying that this horrible thing that's happening in your life is what will humble you and drive you to your knees and cause you to realize that, you know, there's, there's bigger issues than just what you're dealing with now. How about dying and going to the lake of fire for all eternity? There's, there's where the real prayers come in. So I'm not lying to them when I say I'll pray for you. It's just uh, what is it I'm praying about uh, when it comes to those things. Um, so please pray to the Lord our God on our behalf. In verse 7, now the word inquiry doesn't appear here, but in verse 7, I think it's implicit and it's stated, uh, thus says the Lord God of Israel, thus you were to say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me to inquire of me? All right, so there was really some inquiring going on, even though it may not have been mentioned in verse uh, 3. Uh, nevertheless, uh, it's going to be dismissed. It's going to be rejected uh, by the Lord here. It's a message of judgment. Uh, he's not going to like the answer that he gets here because uh, Babylon will be victorious in, uh, in this. Now, Uh, This seems to be very similar to chapter 21. It seems somewhat redundant with chapter 21. The linkage between this chapter and chapter 21 is one that causes a lot of questions. I tend to date this uh, just prior to the chapter. Others will date it just after the chapter. And so uh, here's another bookmark that I go to repeatedly, uh, trying to track the, uh, the, the chronology of Jeremiah. This book was not written sequentially. The chapters are scrambled. The chapters are not in a pure sequence. And so the the great uh, blessings we had in in Isaiah, where everything was sequential, doesn't show up this way in in Jeremiah. So uh, chapters 1 through 6 are early, and then 7 through 10 are late, and then 11 and 12 are earlier again, and chapter 13 is later. You see we're going up and down in the time stream, back and forth uh, in, in time. Chapters 14 through 20 were earlier than chapter 13, but then chapter 21 drops way late. See, and so what we're looking at in uh, in this, what we're looking at in this is the relationship of chapter twenty one to what we're dealing here with thirty seven, thirty eight, and what follows, taking us all the way down to chapter forty four, on into uh, into January. So how does chapter twenty one fit? How is it linked? And we have clues, I think, in this text that caused me to differ a little bit with Walvert and differ a little bit with some other views. I think that this chapter is slightly ahead of chapter 21 and then chapter 38 is slightly after chapter 21. So I would sandwich chapter 21 in between this week and next week, in between chapter 37 and chapter 38. And there's other reasons for that as well, which we can talk about next week when uh, Jeremiah gets thrown into the well but then when we get back to chapter 45 we're back in time again 45 through 49 we're backing up earlier we're going back to the reign of jehoiakim again we're going back to a much earlier stage uh back to really back to 605 where so much happens in in jeremiah in daniel uh in in 605 we also get the story of the captivity twice Uh, jerusalem will be destroyed in chapter 39 and it's going to be destroyed the the narrative gets told again in uh chapter 52 All right, I may put that back up on some future classes as well. Even if Judah could militarily defeat the Babylonians, which they can't, but even if they could, there would still be no rescue for Jerusalem. And the language that's used here is really a language of extreme, it's a language of sarcasm, which I'm fluent in. It's a language of um, just mocking ridicule it is communicated that way so that it is so utterly hopeless. And King Zedekiah has to embrace that. He has to absolutely surrender to how hopeless it is. And this is what we see in these early verses. All right, so let's um, take a look at these other verses I haven't gotten to yet. In verse 3, he said, please pray to the Lord our God on our behalf. So verse 4, now Jeremiah was still coming in and going out among the people, for they had not yet put him in the prison. That's that's key in my mind. That's determinative right there. He, he's still a free man. He's still walking the streets. He's not yet under arrest. And so that's that's what causes me to put this chapter slightly ahead of chapter twenty-one. Meanwhile, Pharaoh's army had set out from Egypt, and when the Chaldeans who had been besieging Jerusalem heard the report about them, they lifted the siege from Jerusalem. There was a brief moment where the siege stopped for just the shortest period of time, probably only lasted a week, maybe not even that. Just a few days where the Babylonians had to break off the siege and deal with the Egyptians who were coming out. And uh, we saw that a couple weeks back even when when the slaves got released and got re-enslaved. We'll talk about that here on an upcoming slide. Uh, It doesn't last long uh, at all. So, uh, yeah, Pharaoh's army had set out from Egypt and the Chaldeans had been besieging Jerusalem. They heard the report. They lifted the siege from Jerusalem. So it didn't last very long. But the Lord gives a message here saying, don't get too full of yourselves. All right. Yes, the siege is lifted. But, hey, don't think for a minute that you're going to win. You're not going to win. So thus says verse seven, thus says the Lord God of Israel, thus you were to say to the king of Judah. Who's, who sent you to me uh, uh, to inquire of me? Behold, Pharaoh's army, which has come out for your assistance, is going to return to its own land of Egypt. They're not even going to engage in battle. They're going to get part way and then turn around and run. And uh, the Chaldeans will also return and fight against this city. They will capture it. They will burn it. If this is where the sarcasm comes in, even if you had defeated the entire army of the Chaldeans who were fighting against you, and there were only wounded men left among them, each man in his tent, they would rise up and burn this city with fire. (laughs) You know? So even if you had victory on the battlefield, and all that was left was the wounded in the mash units, right? In the the mash hospital uh, tents. Then those tents would empty out, and you would still lose the war the city will be burned. There is nothing that's going to stop it. And so I think the, uh, the language here is, is such. It, it shows up in other Old Testament passages as well. There's taunts that happen that even a blind man could destroy this city, things like that. Other places in the Old Testament where those kind of taunts get the message across at how hopeless and helpless the, uh, the situation is. All right. So in verses 11 through 16, we see this is actually going to happen. Pharaoh's army caused a brief uh, respite or respite, depending on what part of the country you're from and how you pronounce it. Uh, a brief respite from the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem. And uh, it comes about as described here. And you would think, hey, this is great. We've got to have a momentary you know, break in the action. We might be able to you know, get a couple things taken care of. Um, well, Jeremiah thought so. It's not going to happen. He gets accused of treason during this time in, uh, in this. So it did happen, verse 11, when the army of the Chaldeans had lifted the siege from Jerusalem because of Pharaoh's army. Uh, Jeremiah went out from Jerusalem to go to the land of Benjamin in order to take possession of some property there among the people. Remember that episode? Do you remember there was, uh, and so the connection here too is interesting. How do we relate that chapter to this chapter? And is this the same property deed that he had to redeem when Baruch was introduced and signed the deed? We'll show you that passage here in a moment. So uh, while he was at the gate of Benjamin, a uh, captain of the guard, whose name was Erijah, the son of Shelemiah, the son of Hananiah, was there. And he arrested Jeremiah the prophet, saying, you are going over to the Chaldeans, calling him a traitor, accusing him of treason, accusing him of, of betraying the city. And uh, which is just plain dumb and stupid, you know, he's a prophet of the Lord. And if he wanted to betray, uh, there's uh, no better place to do it than right here. (laughs) Give him a false prophecy. Uh, Betray the city. But no, uh, in any event, Jeremiah said a lie. I am not going over to the Chaldeans. And uh, you recall the difference we're studying on Wednesday morning right now between gossip and slander. They both hurt. Uh, The gossip is true. The slander is not. (laughs) All right. Satan will use either one and uh and we want to we it's not fun to go through the process but as it happens we can take courage why because this is what to be expected it happened to the prophets it happened to our savior it's going to happen to us blessed are you when men speak evil of you and slander you and say all kinds of evil against you for my name's sake and uh here we see it in the life of jeremiah so jeremiah said a lie i am not going over to the chaldeans yet he would not listen to him. So Ereja, uh, uh, arrested. Jeremiah and brought him to the officials. It's, uh, the Hebrew on this is kind of fun too. I think he's pronounced, uh, it's a bizarre name. It's pronounced like E-E-E-Yahu, I think, something like that. It's makes me giggle. E-E-Yahu. I'll probably stick with the English, Erijah. Erijah arrested Jeremiah. And so the officials were angry at Jeremiah and beat him. That's always a good introdu- introduction to your trial. Um, you're just angry at the arrested prisoner and so you beat him Uh, and they put him in jail in the house of Jonathan the scribe which they had made into the prison for Jeremiah had come into the dungeon that is the vaulted cell and Jeremiah stayed there Many days in the, the terrible conditions. This is the second worst of all the places Jeremiah gets gets stashed. Next week we'll see the worst. Next week we see he gets thrown into the cistern. He gets dumped down the well and and, and begins sinking in the mud and it's certain death in uh, in next week's um, venue. This venue is is bad enough. All right. So we have some details here. Now this brief respite, this pause in the siege was, uh, was mentioned previously. And by the way, when you first engage a siege, it's key. You, you never break it. You got to keep it in place until they starve to death. The whole point of the siege is no one ever goes in and out. The point is, they're going to they're gonna die in that siege of starvation. They're going to run out of water. They're going to run out of food, whatever the case may be. And uh, part of the, the price you pay if you don't surrender your city is if you submit to the siege, then when they do break through, you're all going to die. That's the, that's the penalty. There's no mercy at that point. You should have surrendered up front. If you make the invading army take the time and, and waste the time to, to besiege you, then you the siege is over. Well, so the idea of breaking a siege momentarily is, is just the, the invading army would, would really, really not want to do that unless they felt they had to, unless they felt that this wave of Egyptians coming out was, was a threat and was such that, uh, that they had to uh, give a, a brief break to, to Jerusalem in order to deal with the Egyptians. Okay, and uh, anyway, if you ever study warfare in the ancient world, this is this is a maxim. This is a, a law of war. You keep that siege in place uh, until you starve them out. And, um, very famously, there was a place when Julius Caesar had a city under siege and then he got besieged. And so he built two walls. He had the siege wall around the city he was besieging and then he built the defensive wall around him. And so he was like inside of a donut, really, uh, with withstanding the uh, the, the Germans that were coming at him from from beyond and then still had his victory there uh, on the inner circle of that. Very really fascinating how that uh, how that happens. Anyway, a couple weeks ago, we saw an emancipation proclamation and a, uh, a do-over, right? We saw a release that was proclaimed, and then they re-enslaved everybody. Shortly after that, you might you might recall if you were here three weeks ago and not sleeping. Jeremiah 34, um, verses eight through eleven, uh, King Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people who were in Jerusalem to proclaim release to them, each man should set free his male servant and each man his female servant, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, so that no one should keep them, a Jew, his brother. And all the officials and all the people obeyed. And so they set these slaves free until verse 11. (laughs) Afterward, they turned around and took back the male servants, the female servants, whom they had set free and brought them into subjection for male servants and for female service, And it just, it's so bizarre. What would cause them to release all their slaves and then re-enslave them all over again? And our suspicion is, my suspicion, many other people share, that it was the lifting of the siege that caused the false hope that said, hey, great, we're rescued. We need, and then, you know, we need our slaves back because we got to, you know, we got to rebuild our city. We got to rebuild our farms. We got to rebuild our land now that the Babylonians are gone. And so prime motivation for releasing the slaves and then reenslaving them may have been, I think, likely the, uh, the brief respite from this siege. We also had a previous occasion where in chapter 32, you might recall, uh, Jeremiah had to be the kinsman redeemer on a piece of property. And in Jeremiah 32, now, again, the, the sequence on this, um, some people want to try to place it in a different order that this land here in this chapter he was going out to inspect was not the same as the land that he had previously signed for. And I think that's probably true, because this chapter describes an event where he's not yet been placed into prison. He was still a free man. And yet in that chapter, when you read in Jeremiah 32, he is not a free man. And and so he's constrained within the court. That's why Baruch had to come to him, and they had to sign all the documents and do uh, all the procedures there. Do you remember this episode In Jeremiah 32, hopefully, verses 7 through 12. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, is coming to you. This is, he gets a prophetic uh, preview the day before. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, is coming to you saying, Buy for yourself my field which is at Anathoth, for you have the right of redemption to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the guard, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, buy my field, please, that is, at Anathoth, which is in the hand of the uh, land of Benjamin, for you have the right of possession, and the redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. So he gets the prophecy a day ahead of time, and then his cousin shows up, right? How long has it been since he's seen this cousin? And, and anyway, he's got the word from the Lord that he's supposed to buy this land. He's supposed to redeem this land. Anyway, a lot of the commentators are very quick to, to try to put these chapters together, but I think they put them together in the wrong order. I think it was a different plot of land that Jeremiah was going out to purchase, not his cousin's land that was in need of redemption. So as the case may be, because I think he was a free man at, in chapter 37 until the end of the chapter, and um, he was certainly in prison in chapter uh, thirty-two. Whatever the case may be, these, uh, these concepts, though, are useful for us because they help us to understand, like the book of Ruth, the nature of redemption, the nature of the kinsman redeemer, and what God illustrated through the Jewish people, how every tribe in the nation of Israel had a land grant that was assigned to that tribe, to the clans within that tribe, to the families within the clans. And so if a, if a particular family became so destitute that they lost the ownership of their land, then it was... The bless- it was expected, but it was the blessing of the kinsmen to be that redeemer. And every time they did, when Jeremiah did, when Boaz did, when anybody did, any time when a kinsman redeemed that land, they were portraying Jesus Christ in, in prophecy. They were portraying the coming of the Messiah who would become our kinsman redeemer. Every single time they they were able to act as the kinsman redeemer, they were a foreshadowing of this great doctrine that you and I look back to now with with uh, with such joy. All right, so he's going out to look at this land, and this is where he gets accused. Irija accuses Jeremiah of treason and places him under arrest. And this shouldn't surprise us. During difficult times, fear will drive people to see conspiracies everywhere, all right? Everywhere. This was a topic we looked at in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 12, and it comes up again and again and again. Fear drives a lot of bad decisions. Maybe you've noticed that. (laughs) You know, think back to the last three choices you made on the basis of fear. Were they good choices? All right. As opposed to faith, making choices on the basis of faith. See? And it's not just fear. Uh, It could be anger. It could be, uh, you know, think back to the last three choices you made under anger or lost or any mental attitude sin, right? I can't think of a single mental mental attitude sin whereby if that is the basis of your thinking, you're making a smart choice, okay? You're always going to make a wrong choice under mental attitude sin. It's got to be a faith choice. It's got to be in faith conviction. It's got to be hearing with faith, which we saw last hour in Galatians, Anyway, Isaiah eight twelve, uh, the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, you are not to say it is a conspiracy in regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. He shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. And so we had the message there in Isaiah chapter 8 that Isaiah was blessed to give to, to King Hezekiah. Thankfully, Hezekiah was humble. Hezekiah listened to what the king had to say. Unlike our study this morning, Zedekiah was no Hezekiah. All right, Zedekiah ignored the prophet, whereas Hezekiah listened to the prophet. He was given an extension of his life, and he died in, in peace. He died in blessing. So during difficult times, fear will drive people to see conspiracies everywhere you know, here we are on a Christmas Sunday. And I think this is the, this is the illustration here, right? Because what happened on that, Chris, on that Christmas morning when the Magi arrived or shortly after the Christmas morning and the Magi arrived and they come to King Herod and they say, where is he who was born King of the Jews? Did Herod respond very well to that? <laughs> right? No, not at all. Great fear came upon him immediately because as far as Herod was concerned, he was King of the Jews. You know what he went through to get that? You know, you want to know the the blood he spilled, the money he spent, the price he paid to become the king of the Jews and to keep his position as king of the Jews when he wasn't Jewish? He was an he was an Edomite. He was not Jewish, and his father that 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 bought this position and then he was able to buy this position, he was able to keep this position. He survived the civil war between Octavian and and Anthony. He survived Cleopatra trying to kill him. You know, I mean, he he worked hard to become king of the Jews and he had no intention of giving that up. And so the Magi show up and say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We've seen his star from the east. And Herod immediately plunges into this Isaiah 8 mode of conspiracy. They're out to get me. And so he starts to do his research. He starts to call some Pharisees in, starts to call some scribes in and said, uh, you know, where does, where does the Bible say the Messiah is going to be born? You know? Oh, Bethlehem? Okay. <laughs> and as, as as Casey just saying, the, the murder of those babies. You know, I mean, just horrible what happens in uh in that episode. Well, during difficult times, fear will drive people to see conspiracies everywhere. And where are you going? You know, the suspicious thing. He, he wants to go out the Benjamin gate. You know. Where do you think you're going? And 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 this fear that he's betraying them. Anyway, it's uh it is what it is, all right, then uh the rest of this chapter, King Zedekiah sent and took him out, and oh, it doesn't stay there very long. This prison described here as a converted house and then a dungeon, described here with a vaulted cell. The terminology is interesting it's pretty deep from from the way it's described. uh you wonder how dark it is if it's that deep, but anyway uh he gets he gets pulled out of it here. King Zedekiah sent and took him out. And in his palace, the king secretly asked him and said, is there a word from the Lord? All right, so here's more conspiracies. You're terrified of conspiracies, but now you want to take part in one. (laughs) Now you yourself want to get into the secret mode. Don't let anybody know you're talking to that religious person, okay? Because publicly, of course, you still reject everything Jeremiah has to say. But by night, you know, if... Nicodemus can show up by night. Why was he showing up by night? Well, because he has a reputation to maintain. He's got he's got an, an image to uphold. He doesn't want his fellow Pharisees to know that he's talking to this, you know, Galilean carpenter. All right, and so he calls him out here secretly. Zedekiah brought Jeremiah to the palace for a secret consultation, and uh, the secrecy of this that verse seventeen emphasizes I, I find interesting is there a word from the Lord? And Jeremiah said, there is. (laughs) Oh yeah, there's a word. It's the same word you ignored before and you're not going to want to hear it. He said, you will be given into the hand of the king of Babylon. Uh, Simple. Moreover, Jeremiah said to King Zedekiah, in what way have I sinned against you or against your servants or against this people that you have put me into prison? So was it really the captain of the guard that just took this initiative on himself, or was he under the king's orders? Was he already under surveillance? And so the minute Jeremiah was headed to the gate, the Ereja was, was actually operating on King Zedekiah's behalf. So uh, in what way have I sinned against you or against your servants or against this people that you have put me into prison? Where then are your prophets who prophesied to you saying the king of Babylon will not come against you or against this land? <laughs> you realize uh, this is a, a great big, not only an I told you so moment, but you know what are you asking me for? What about the guys you like to listen to? This crowd of false prophets that you listen to? This crowd that lives in nicer uh, uh, chambers than I've got assigned to me right now, (laughs) okay? And uh, these health, wealth, and prosperity preachers that want to tell you everything's great and Babylon's going away and Babylon's not coming back. And you get these real slick, you know, televangelist kind of guys that, uh, you know, they're just ear ticklers, telling Zedekiah everything that he wants to hear. You know, where are they? How come they weren't invited to this little secret meeting you got you and me here talking? Why, 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 are, we, why are we talking here in secret? Where, where's this crowd of people that you're... Uh, I got some stuff to tell them too. But they, they didn't seem to get invited here tonight. What's going on? Okay. So you get how challenging this is? How mocking this is? It's, it, it, and this is a, a marvelous um, showdown, if you will. I think along the lines of, of uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. I mean, it, it really is a stark contrast because you got one guy telling the truth and you got a whole crew of people that are telling the opposite. And, they're, and you won't talk about conspiracy. They're the ones that are conspiring. <laughs> they're all together on the, on the false message of hope that says, no, Babylon's going away and we're, we're in good shape. Okay, all of that's a lie. So uh, we see it. So where then are your prophets, plural, who prophesied to you repeatedly, saying, the king of Babylon will not come against you or against this land. But now, please listen, O my lord, the king, please let my petition come before you and do not make me return to the house of Jonathan the scribe that I may not die there. It is a deep dungeon and uh, don't put me back in that pit. So King Zedekiah gave commandment and they committed Jeremiah to the court of the guardhouse, uh, a different jail, better jail housing, uh, not as deep see some sunshine. Actually, the court, you get to walk around out, it's like a rec yard, right? The courtyard of the guardhouse. And gave him a loaf of bread daily from the Baker Street. That's actually, if your city's under siege, that's a huge boost right there. Wow. And He realized the food was already being rationed anyway. He gets a loaf of bread daily from the Baker Street until all the bread in the city was gone. So Jeremiah remained in the court of the guardhouse. And that's what brings our chapter here to a close. The message is blunt, and the false prophets are ridiculed. The message is blunt, and the false prophets are ridiculed. And this to me is striking. This to me is uh, is a pattern. I I see our Savior follows the same pattern. I see that he has no problem just flat out contradicting the false teachers of his own generation. And just very bluntly and very directly laying it out there saying, you guys don't know anything. You know know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And Jesus will be very blunt against the teachers of his generation that have a message opposed to the truth that he is revealing. And does that mean that he's a hater? Does that mean that he's, uh, he's, he's got a flawed ministry? No, Jesus wasn't a hater. He loved the Lord and he loved the word of God and he was faithful to the message as the father had revealed it. And to call a false teacher a false teacher isn't hate. Calling a lie a lie isn't hate. It's defending the truth. That's what we're called to do. See, the problem is we're living in a culture that's telling us to shut up, telling us that who are you to defend the truth and what is truth and saying, well, you know, maybe it's true for you, but it's not true for them. So leave them alone. No, it's not true for them either. They're, they're living in a lie. And it's not love on my part to watch them engage in that self-destructive behavior. I want to speak the truth in love. That's love. See? Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. See? And so the next time you're accused of hating or a love deficiency and whatever, just take them to 1 Corinthians 13 and point right there and say, here's what love does. All right? And throw it right back at them and say, "You're not. you're the one that's not walking in love that's what it's all about all right but the secrecy thing i think is interesting and the um the change of the jail housing <laughs> as a consequence you know um he doesn't set him free he doesn't uh, let him just go inspect the land and do whatever he needs to do and you know he's he's still keeping them under arrest but he's going to keep him under arrest in a nicer place so it's a friendlier arrest okay um which I find, uh, again, representative of much of what we deal with in our culture, Uh, where they don't totally accept what we have to say, but they don't want to completely mistreat us, not quite yet. Maybe later we'll get brave enough to do that. Curious to me how uh, these applications come. At Jeremiah's request, Zedekiah orders an improvement to his jail housing. He orders an improvement to his jail housing. He's not going to be free, but he'll lift some of the, the worse components of his punishment. See? And in difficult times, it may be that's going to be the best it's going to get. We, uh, we're studying this right now on Wednesday mornings in Proverbs. In, in difficult times, believers learn how to lay low. We learn how to walk circumspectly. We learn how to maintain a low profile. When the wicked reign, the righteous groan. And we may find that that a certain anti-Bible view is in a political ascendancy and then things get rough for us. Things absolutely get rough for for born-again Christians trying to live out their faith. And there is a crowd that will be very militant and very demanding. And they will shake their fist and stomp their feet and you will be made to care. Okay? You will bake that cake. You will take those pictures. You will participate. And you will be made to conform. See? And then political winds can blow a different direction. And believers that want to live out their faith, uh, the pressure is going to be released, and then they will be able to rejoice. Proverbs describes about that. When the righteous reign, the the, the, the believers then will be able to rejoice. And then I find it also interesting <laughs> a side of people that will shake their fist and stomp their feet, and they say, "Well, we're not gonna we're not gonna perform at an inauguration, and you can't make us sing, and you can't make us dance, and you can't make us participate." Well, we could if you were a, a cake baker. <laughs> oh, but because you're a Hollywood artist now, you we can't make you sing. I say make them sing, make them sing, fine them. For not singing? Oh, that would be returning evil for evil, wouldn't it? Okay, well, <laughs> all right. So don't make them sing. And if a rocket doesn't want to dance, then a rocket, you know, can't make them dance. Um, or whatever rockets do. Yeah, they dance, right? Okay. But it, this is what we're talking about. And so he's not being released but he's going to be treated slightly less bad than he had been treated before, okay? And it may be that that's that's the best it gets, okay? And so whatever the conditions are, whatever the circumstances are, I think we learn from these things. We learn to be content. The Apostle Paul talks about learning to be content in any and every circumstance, that uh, if we're a slave, we can still serve God, if we're able rather to be free, we'll then rather do that. But if not, we keep serving. See, We have principles throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament alike that we find ourselves in the condition that we are. We thank Him for being faithful and we be, we're content. We may prefer a better spot, but if He doesn't provide it, He doesn't provide it. If He does, He does. We praise Him either way. All right, the court of the guard is better than the uh, house of Jonathan. And and some of these may be idiomatic anyway, as far as the Hebrew expression goes. The court of the guard house, the court of the guards. And so, you know, you can kind of envision a spot whereby all the guards, all the palace guards, all the guards, this is where their house, this is their barracks, this is where they sleep, this is where they eat probably the safest place in town (laughs) all right and and so if they have rooms off of this center courtyard that's how the architecture tended to be you had one gate going in you had a center open air courtyard and then you had bed chambers off the different sides in some cases stairs going up but anyway this this courtyard uh may not be you know you're not free but at least you're outdoors at least you can see the sunshine and you can breathe the air and whatever and and Plus, you can talk to guards coming and going, and you get to eat. And uh, the loaf of bread is—it's it's a nicer place than the pit, nicer place than the converted house of Jeremiah of—I'm uh, no, sorry, Joshua the scribe and the house or Jonathan, the scribe, which they had made into a prison, with the uh, the pit, with a vaulted scene or the dungeon rather in the vaulted cell. All right. Well, other aspects on this, uh, Jeremiah thirty-two. Uh, we have the the guardhouse, the court of the guardhouse that's mentioned there. Chapter 33, it's mentioned. Chapter 37, where we are today. It'll come back again next week, and it'll come back again in week 39, as uh, this is where they're going to find him when the city is captured. When the ci- and by the way, we're just two weeks away from the fall of Jerusalem. Isn't that cool? Uh, so, uh, New Year's Sunday on New Year's Day, we'll we'll have uh, chapter 38, which is. Um, where he's thrown in the well and Ebed-Melech will, will rescue him and save his life. And then in uh, chapter 39, uh, January 8th, we'll come back and uh, we'll see the fall of Jerusalem and we'll see Jeremiah being spared. He's going to be brought out. They're, they're going to send and take Jeremiah out of the court of the guardhouse and entrust him to Gedali, the son of Ahakam, the son of Shaphan, to take him home. So he stayed among the people. And uh, we'll be blessed to look at that. All right, I have a few minutes remaining. So before we close, uh, just uh, again, a principle here. I think the the nature of this reminds me of some things. And I can kind of tie this into a Christmas message. How about that? Matthew chapter two, one quick side trip, and then we'll dismiss. But Matthew chapter two, here's the Magi showing up. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah in the days of Herod the king, magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So gathering together, notice, this is the public gathering. This is like uh, King Zedekiah gathering together all his false prophets on the one hand, And then calling a a follow-up meeting in secret. So gathering together all the chief priests and scribes, of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And imagine that. Somebody pays attention to the minor prophets. All right. Micah and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah in fact, too small to be counted among the clans of Judah. The Ephrathah clan was not even a a registered clan among the the clans of uh, of Judah. But out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So there you go, okay? Now it's time for the secret meeting, the follow-up meeting. So Herod secretly called the magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared now why do you start getting shady like this why do you start getting shifty and shady and having these secret meetings and trying to learn stuff that other people don't know all right because you're a snake you're a manipulator you're trying to control things you're trying to do things that some people know about and other people don't know about so he sent them to bethlehem and said Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report back to me so that I too may come and worship him. What a lying snake, okay? He has no intention to come and worship. None at all. So after hearing the king, they went their way. And the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. Now that's extraordinary. You know why the star didn't go straight to Bethlehem. The star came first to Jerusalem, brought them here. They stood before Herod. Then the star moved to Bethlehem. And I think God is genius in what he's doing here as he uh, allows for this to happen. So when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, not the manger, the house, you've got a little scene with wise men with the shepherds in the manger i do too but it's a bad it's a bad manger scene i don't know why they make them that way so they fell to the ground and they worshiped him then opening their treasures and they presented to him gifts of gold frankincense and myrrh and this is what funds their escape this is what funds their living arrangements in egypt so having been warned by god in a dream not to return to herod the magi left for their own country by another way anyway this is uh This is it. And so the angel says, uh, flee to Egypt. I love this. You know, if if you had to right now with the money in your pocket, could you flee the country and live for two years? You know, um, God's way ahead. God's got this plan already delivered the funds to to, for their escape and everything right there. So take the child and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Anyway, then the slaughter of the babies and all of this. But see, here's the thing. I I love this. It's a sad story, yes. But here's the thing. For 30 years, Satan thinks he wins, right? Or at least wonders if he wins. At least wonders. He doesn't know. For all this time, the babies are dead, and Satan is is left clueless. So God testifies to the birth of the Messiah, testifies to the, to all the fulfilled prophecy with, with the wise men, with the shepherds, with everybody. Christ has come into the world. And then God the Father gives privacy to Joseph and Mary and the child, and, the, and he able, he's able to grow in obscurity in, in Nazareth. It's not until he's about 30 years of age then that he comes to the Jordan River to be baptized, right? Right? And the heavens are open and the dove descends and the voice comes out of heaven and says, Behold my son with whom I'm well pleased. And at that moment, all of a sudden, 30 years later, Satan goes, Oh, <laughs> oh, okay. But it didn't work. See? And then he's driven into the wilderness and it's, it's game on, right? They do battle right there, at the temptation in the wilderness. And right after the baptism event at the River Jordan. Anyway, so this, the murder of these babies horrible and tragic and, and and fulfilled prophecy with with that but the uh i think the the grace of of god that allowed jesus to be uh to be raised in privacy and obscurity to to uh to grow to adulthood in in uh, protection and safety you know if you think about it, everything god did to keep you alive long enough to get saved <laughs> right you know kept me alive long i was already saved young but kept me alive long enough to get through that stupid stuff and to get to become a pastor and all the rest of the grace God poured forth. See, God works in that. All right. Thank you, Father, for this morning. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for your word. And Father, thank you for the faithfulness of Jeremiah. Uh, All these years of ministry and rejection after rejection and mistreatment after mistreatment and uh, jail after dungeon after cistern and everything else placed in the stocks and left as a mocking ridicule for a night, all these things he went through. And yet, Father, he he stayed faithful, faithful to you in every application, in every assignment. And for Baruch, Father, Baruch had to step up. Baruch had to go from a, a scribe role to a speaking role. You had to get him out of his comfort zone to serve in a, in a realm that, that he wasn't comfortable with. And all these things, Father, I pray that you continue to bless Austin Bible Church and the ministry you opened before us. I thank you for what you're teaching us in these prophets in Isaiah and Jeremiah, these prophets that come alive, that are just as alive and powerful today as they ever, have, have ever been. And so, Father, we're just so thankful that you work and you work so mightily. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.